Okay. We are still in Genesis chapter 17. Been there for a couple weeks. And we are talking about the establishment of the covenant, of God's covenant with Abraham. And uh, last week we looked uh, pretty much at verses 3 or 4 through down. uh, uh, Well, actually, last week we looked at verses 9 through 14 primarily. And uh, this week we'd like to pick up with... uh, Verse 15 and down through the end of the chapter. Uh, And uh, last week we were talking about uh, the things that God wanted Abraham to do in response to the covenant is his obligation and his responsibility to the covenant. So uh, looking at your Bibles there, what do you remember that we talked about last week. Okay, good. The four the four promises that God makes to Abraham. Okay? The multitude of descendants, the promise of the land, the promise that he would be their God, and the promise that the covenant was an everlasting covenant. Okay? What else? Okay. We talked about circumcision. Uh, which is what? What? I mean, apart from the obvious physical thing, is what's the significance of it? Why? Why does it come to come to play here in this part of the story? Okay, it's the sign or the seal of the covenant relationship between God and Abraham. On God's part, He gives Abraham a new name. That's God's way of saying, I'm committed to this thing, okay? And it's a promise that I am making to you. The circumcision then serves in in a sense as Abraham's sign to God that he is also committed to this relationship, okay? And so it is a a permanent mark that Abraham carries and his descendants all carry in their bodies, okay? Why Why does God want this symbol or this sign or this mark of this covenant to be on the male procreative organs. I mean, you know, it seems like it would have been a whole lot more pleasant for us to talk to to talk about if he'd asked them to put a tattoo on their shoulder or something. You know, why 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 this particular sign? What's the significance of that? Okay, okay. It relates to uh, it relates to two things. One, it relates to uh, the original command of God in the garden that we talked about last week. But but it also relates to the whole nature of the covenant. The whole 
the whole covenant thing is wrapped up in this idea of bearing children and having children. And God wants Abraham to see that in this spiritual light. And so, the mark of circumcision is a way to impress upon Abraham and upon all of Abraham's descendants the, the sanctity and the holiness and the importance of this whole thing of, of bearing children and raising up a righteous seed. Okay? And then we talked about how, how the significance of this covenant that God is entering into with Abraham here, or actually he's already entered into it in chapter 15. He's simply at this point establishing it or saying, now we're, now we're going to put it, into, put it into force. We're going to actually begin this now. The significance here is that, is that in some sense God is, if we can use this word, he is restoring the original plan. Okay? The original plan, Genesis chapter 2, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are his command to Adam and Eve to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we talk about how God's plan was to fill the earth. Or his original intent and desire was to fill this new heaven and, or this new earth with, with uh, millions and millions of people who would be like Adam and Eve, pure and holy and love him and desire him and walk with him and fellowship him and, with him. And he would walk and fellowship with them. And I don't know what that's about. <laughs> Uh, he would, they would walk and uh, <laughs> they, that he would walk and fellowship with them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that is that's God's desire. That was God's intent. Okay. And of course, Adam and Eve corrupted that, or in one sense, we could almost say destroyed it when they sinned. Okay. They 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 interfered with that whole plan of God. The covenant that God now enters into with Abraham is to say, I am El Shaddai. I am the Almighty. And my plans will not be thwarted. And I still intend to raise up a righteous seed, a righteous mass of people who will love and worship me and I can walk with them and fellowship with them and they can fellowship with me. And so he's, so in one sense, we're going back and, and kind of uh, re- uh, seizing the opportunity again, if you will, and overcoming the effects of the fall and reestablishing this plan of God to establish this righteous generation or righteous seed. Okay. So that's what God is, is about here in establishing this covenant. And so this whole thing of, of, of the, the sexual, intimate sexual relationships between a man and a woman is a sanctified thing. It's a holy thing. And it's designed to produce this righteous generation or this righteous seed. And so it's appropriate that the sign of the covenant would be in the male organ. Okay? As a reminder, a constant reminder to us of the sanctity and the holiness and the purpose and the objective and the goal of this whole sexual relationship thing. Okay? So that's the significance of that. Okay? Well, let's go on and pick up because we're, we're a little short on time, so I don't want to take too much time in review. But let's pick it up now in verse uh, 15 and read down through the end of the chapter. And you'll remember that we said the, chapters, uh, the, the chapter is kind of broken down basically into three or you might say four parts. But primarily God is, as we said, establishing his covenant with Abraham at this point. Uh, he's effectuating. He's putting it in. He's putting it into effect here at this point, and and he and he as he does so, he he describes it or he breaks it down into three parts. The part that describes his responsibility, what he's going to do. The part that describes uh, Abraham's role in the covenant, and then thirdly, 
the part that describes Sarah's role or Sarai's role in the covenant. Okay? And as we've mentioned, each one of those parts begins in verse 4. It begins when God describes his part. He says, uh, as for me. And then he goes on and he describes his part. And then uh, in verse 9, it says, now as for you, Abraham, it describes Abraham's part. And then in verse 15, we get the third part, which is Sarah's part in this whole thing. Okay. So that's where we're picking it up in verse 15. And it says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, Behold, I will bless him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all his servants who were born in his house and all who were brought, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's, house, Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Okay, so we have then the account of God's account of what Sarah's role is in things uh, and where Isaac fits into this whole thing. And then we have Abraham's response to God's instructions. Okay, So. Finally, we come after this whole story of Abraham that began clear back at the end of chapter 11. And we've been talking and talking and talking about Abraham now for many, many, many weeks. And we've only really talked about Sarah in, in a couple ways. One, we talked about her back in chapter 16 with that whole scenario with Hagar, which wasn't very complimentary, of course. Uh, uh, of Sarai. Uh, and, and then the only other thing we've really said about Sarai for the last many, many weeks that we've been talking about Abram is we keep talking about Sarai being what? Barren. OK, that's about the only thing we know about Sarai so far. OK, is she's barren. And and then eventually in that whole situation with Hagar, she reaches a point of desperation and she brings Hagar to her husband and that whole thing unfolds uh, with Ishmael. OK. Now, finally, we begin to get to see a little bit about where Sarah fits in. Sarai fits into this whole story. Okay. Now we begin to really focus on Sarah. And because we've really not really talked much about Sarah or thought much about Sarah or 
uh, and, and the things that we have thought about haven't been real complimentary or real encouraging, it might be helpful for us to stop and think for a minute about this woman and what is she like? Because Scripture really is pretty explicit. If you turn over in your New Testaments uh, to First uh, Peter, there's quite a description there that I think is helpful for us to understand where Sarai fits into this whole story. Okay, but in uh, in chapter three of First Peter, uh, Peter is exhorting the women in the context of the church and in their families as to how they're to relate and and live and that sort of thing. And beginning in verse three, he says, your adorn- your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. But let it be in the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives as an, in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The thing, one of, well, I'll refer back to this passage several times uh, today, but one of the things I want to mention to you is, is notice there in verse 5 that it classifies Sarai among the what? The holy women, okay? So one of the things we discover about Sarai is that she is a holy woman, woman and that she hoped in God. And that it talks about her not being afraid and women not being afraid. And specifically the reason that Sarai is not afraid is because her hope is in God, okay? So through all these circumstances that, that Abraham's been going through over these number of years that we've been looking at his life, Sarai has been there at, his, at her side, and the description that we get from Peter is that she has been a holy woman who has not been afraid. Now, that doesn't mean that she's never been afraid. It doesn't mean that she's never stumbled. We see very clearly in chapter 16 a case where she has stumbled. It's like with Abraham. We talk about him as this great model of faith, but we do see examples of his, in his life of where he failed in faith periodically, but that does not change the fact that the general, general toner and ca- tone and characteristic of Abraham's uh, life was a life of faith. And the same is true with Sarai. She made mistakes and Scripture points those mistakes out to us, but Scripture is very clear in, 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 in emphasizing to us Sarai's holiness and Sarai's faith. So whatever else has been going on in the life of Sarai through these 25 years that we've been following this couple, one of the things that we know about her is that she's a holy woman and that she trusted in God and that generally speaking, she was not afraid because she did trust in God. And so she was able to submit to her husband and she was able to adorn herself with these qualities and these characteristics. She was more concerned, uh, according to First Peter chapter 3, she was more concerned about her internal adornment than her external adornment. Okay? There's nothing wrong with women adorning themselves externally, but the emphasis in Peter is make sure that you've done so internally first. That's the priority. And we discover that Sarai is a woman like that. Okay? And so now we come to the part in the story where God finally makes it clear where Sarai fits into this story. You remember back in chapter 16 that that one of the 
problems, I think, in, that Sarai had is that after God's covenant, uh, God cut his covenant with Abraham in chapter 15, that he had made it very explicit to Abraham what his role was going to be in this whole covenant thing and the descendants. But he didn't say anything about Sarai. And so it seems like this whole thing with Hagar that develops in chapter 16 is in part a response because Sarai reaches the conclusion that she's somehow excluded from this deal. Okay. But now we discover when we get to chapter 17, after God very carefully details for Abraham what's going to happen, then finally God turns to Sarai and he says, okay, now this is where Sarai fits into it. Okay. And and that's really encouraging to me uh, and to to realize that that there are oftentimes times when we when we don't see God's hand and we don't see God's plan, we don't see where we fit into God's plan. But that doesn't mean it's because he doesn't have a place for us. It's not because he hasn't uh, he hasn't included us in his promise and included us in his plans. It's just that he has, for whatever reason, chosen not to reveal it. I don't know why he chose all these years to keep talking to Abraham and telling Abraham over and over and over again, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And he never says a word about Sarah. But finally, at this point, he does. And he says to Abraham, it's now for Sarai, he says. And then what does he do? What does God do? He changes her name. Okay, this. Okay, so this is now the third time we've been introduced to a new name in this chapter. Okay, the first time was when God introduced Himself by the name El Shaddai. Okay, was a new name for God that we had not encountered before. And then, as He describes for Abraham the things He's going to do in Abraham's life, He changes His name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, which is father of multitude. Okay. So now he comes to Sarai and he does the same thing for Sarai. He says to Abraham, he says, you will no longer call her Sarai, but her name will be Sarah. And he changes her name. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is the name Sarai and the name Sarah mean the same thing. Okay. They both have the idea or the sense to them of of a princess or princely or that, that type of idea to them. Okay? They, they really basically have apparently the same meaning. Okay? But, her name, but God wants to change her name from Sarai, princess, to Sarah, princess. Okay? Why does God want to do that? Okay, because what? What's going to happen? Okay, she's going to have. A, she's going to be a mother, and God details. We'll come back and talk about her name change in just a minute. But God details a, a number of significant things that are going to happen in the life of Sarah. The first is what? She's going to have a child. Okay, she's going to give Abram a child. Now he doesn't say yet whether it's a boy or a girl in the same image. He just says she's going to have a child. She's going to give you a child, okay? And then what else? She's going to be the mother of nations. And then what? 
Kings will come from you. Okay, so she's going to have a child. She's going to be the mother of nations. Kings will come forth from her. And then as we go down further in the chapter, we we find out that the child is going to be what? A boy. And he's going to be called. That's actually in verse 16. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Okay, right. Okay. He will have a son. Okay. And, and then if we get down later, we find out the son's name is going to be Isaac. Okay. And when is this all going to happen? Within a year. Okay. By this time next year, you're going to. So, so suddenly Abram, uh, Abraham uh, discovers all these magnificent things about this woman who's been his wife for 60 or 70 years or however long the two of them have been married. He finds out all these wonderful things about her. And it's because of these things that are going to happen in the life of Sarai that God says to Abraham, you're to no longer call her Sarai, for her name will be called Sarah. Okay. Now, it's, there's, there's really a lot that's, that's really interesting to me in this. Because, as I said, the, the name really means the same. I mean, the meaning of the name is the same. It means basically princess. Okay. <clears throat> so, the, so the question is, why the name change? Well, presumably, where did she get the name princess initially? Sarah. Okay, probably from her parents. Okay. It might actually be... Uh, some clue or some indication of her, you know, of her birth, uh, uh, her heritage. You know, she might have been born into some kind of uh, very powerful princely or royal family. You know, uh, that's really quite possible. And so when she was born, she was named Sarah because it was expected that she was going to be in the context of this family, a, a princess. OK, uh, but. So she's she's born and she's given this name and then eventually she marries Abraham and and Abraham, we discover as the story unfolds, is really himself quite a guy, isn't he? He's extremely uh, apparently he's a pretty intelligent guy. He's quite wealthy uh, and I don't think he got there by accident. Certainly it was God's blessing on his life, but but uh, he, he couldn't have been as wealthy as he was and as successful as he was without some degree of gift and ability to do the things that he did. So he's a very uh, wealthy man. He's a very intelligent man. And he becomes, as we saw earlier in the story, he becomes fairly influential in his environment, in his context, and he becomes even militarily successful. Okay, so in one sense, she's a princess by birth, but she's also a princess because she's married to this really uh, uh, somewhat successful, somewhat powerful and influential and wealthy individual. Okay. But the thing about the name Sarai is that Sarai is a reference to the woman that she that, to, to, to what she is just in and of herself. Okay. It's a reference to to what she is by natural birth and what she is by her association with Abraham. And what she is just of her own natural gifts and ability. Okay. Now, God says, I want to give you I want to give her a new name. I want you to call her Sarah. Now, it means the same thing. But 
what does the new name speak to? If the old name speaks to to her her birth and her origin and what she was as a, just as a natural woman, what does the name Sarai speak to? It speaks to the covenant relationship. What else? Okay, so it speaks to her future, doesn't it? Whereas Sarai speaks to her past, Sarah speaks to her future. It speaks to what she's going to become. And how is she going to become that? What's going to make her that way? Okay, but how's that happen? By the power of God and by the promise of God, by the covenant, right? So... What God is saying to Abraham is, I don't want you to call her Sarai in reference to what she is just naturally or, or, or what she is by right of birth or by right of her association with you. I, I don't want you to call her Sarai in reference to what she has been. But I want you to call her Sarah in reference to what she is by my promise and my power and what she's going to become. Now, I want you to notice something. You've probably read this verse many times, but I want you to notice something here. God does not simply change her name. What does he tell Abraham in reference to the name Sarah? Don't call her Sarah. Have you ever thought about that? He actually prohibits Abraham from calling this woman, whom he's been calling Sarai for 60 or 70 or 80 years, however long he's known her. He says, you are not to call her Sarai. Why? Why does God not want him calling her Sarai? Okay, okay. He wants Abraham to think of her in light of what she is by the covenant promise of God and what her future is. That's how he wants Abraham thinking of her. He doesn't want, excuse me? And probably everybody else. And everybody else, yes. What, what he wants is he wants them to view Sarai for what she is now by the power and the promise of God and what she is going to become by the power and promise of God. And he doesn't want Abraham thinking of her as just the woman that she's always been because she's not the woman she's always been. There's something new and something profound here that's happening by the power of God. And he wants to reorder the way Abraham thinks about his wife. And he wants to see her. He wants Abraham to see her in this spiritual sense in a way that Abraham has never Abraham has never seen her before or never understood her to be. Now, I'm sure Abraham loved her and I knew I'm sure Abraham knew that she was a holy woman and that she loved God and that she was a woman in faith. And I'm sure he knew all of those things. But what God is saying now is I'm making a change in your wife and I'm doing a glorious and new and a powerful thing in her life. And that's the way you are to look at her. And that's the way you are to call her. So not only does he want Abraham to think differently about Sarah, but every time Abraham now, especially in the first few weeks after this change occurs, every time Abraham calls for dinner and he says, 
Sarah, would you, what happens? She goes, it reminds her too that she's not what she used to be. But that she's something different. Now, obviously, this, this is riddled with application, isn't it? And the first thing that I think of is it's a challenge to us guys, isn't it? How do we think of our wives? How do we look at our wives? Do we, do we just look at our wives as, you know, well, yeah, she's that woman I've been married to and she's pretty hot and she's, you know, and she makes a, you know, she makes a great casserole and, you know, and, and, and all that sort of thing, you know. Is that how we look at them? In the passage we looked at in Peter, we're specifically instructed to look at them as fellow heirs of the grace of life. And what's interesting to me about that command in 1 Peter is it comes in the context of a discussion of Abraham and Sarah. Yes? You know, my dad used to say uh, that you give people reputations, they'll either live up to them or live down to them. And you kind of wonder if he had done this. There, there you go. Yeah, I'm sure it, it when, when you when you communicate to people how highly you think of them, they want to live up to that. Yeah, that's true. Well, the, the broader application that you were going to get to, I'm sure, <laughs> uh, is what I affectionately call the worm theology that we as Christians, and you hear this all the time, you know, I'm just a worm, I'm no good, blah, 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 and, you know. Instead of viewing ourselves the way God uses in a spiritual sense, now it's true that we have all that worm junk in there, but I think it's a huge difference in perspective from viewing ourselves as worm who's been redeemed, as opposed to viewing ourselves as someone who's been redeemed who has some worm junk in our lives. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wasn't going to go there, but I was going to go to a similar place. <laughs> In addition to the challenge to us guys to make sure that we view our wives as Sarah's and not Sarai's, I think there's also a challenge to us here as all believers. As we look around the room here and we look at other believers and we walk through the halls of the church and we see other believers or we rub shoulders with other Christians in the community, how do you look at them? Do you look at them from God's perspective? Do you see them the way God sees them as people in whom, the, in, in whom His Spirit dwells and in whom His Spirit's moving and people who have this tremendous promise and this tremendous hope and this tremendous future? You know, it's very easy when we rub shoulders with people in the context of the church to see them in a very carnal, fleshly way, isn't it? Especially if we have maybe a little personality clash with them or they don't agree with it exactly the same on theology or, you know, or, or, or maybe they just have a strange way of arranging the chairs or, you know, we find all kinds of ways to look at people in the church and think of them on a purely fleshly level, don't we? And I think God wants us to remember that they're Sarah's and not Sarah's. That there's something different in them because of the power of God and the promise of God and the covenant of God in their lives and because of the Spirit of God in their lives. I've shared this with you before, I'm sure, but I, I, I share this with people when uh, sometimes people ask me about teaching and about how I teach and, and ask me for tips on teaching. And, but one of the things I, I like to share is that when I come into the classroom here and stand up here to teach, 
One of the things I try to remember is I'm not just teaching a bunch of people. I'm teaching people who, as far as I know, most if not, if not all of you, in whom God's Spirit dwells. So I'm not here to persuade a bunch of people to do something. I'm here seeking to communicate to the Spirit that is in you. And if I can do that, if I can speak to the Spirit is in you, that's all I have to do. Because He'll do the rest. And He'll actualize, He'll activate that truth in your hearts. So I don't have to persuade, and I don't have to conjole, and I don't have to browbeat. Now, maybe if you're a bunch of pagans, I would. But you're not a bunch of pagans. You are people in whom God's Spirit dwells. And as a teacher, that's my responsibility to view you as Sarah's and not as Sarah's. Well, gee, we've gotten through one verse. <laughs> okay, well, let's keep going. Yes, we haven't gotten one through one verse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe two, he was going to have a There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool to think. I hadn't thought about the companion aspect of that, but, you know, here they are the first night after this happens. They're alone in the tent. And he's calling her Sarah. And she's calling him Abraham for the first time in 60 or 70 years of marriage. And what was that like? That's awesome. Well, let's move on. So we know now that Sarah has this great future and she's got this uh, this new name. And and Abraham is so overwhelmed by this news from God. What happens? He falls down on his face. OK, which is kind of interesting because he's already been there. He got there you know, right after God showed up and said, I'm El Shaddai. He fell on his face. OK, but now he, apparently he's gotten up and they've carried on the conversation. And then God hits him with another broadside and he falls on his face again, again, in worship and submission to God. But as he does so, the God's words to him about his wife are echoing in his mind as he falls to the ground. And in his heart, he doesn't say this openly, but in his heart, he goes, and it's me. Okay. Most commentators uh, think at this point, and, and I'm inclined to agree with them, that there's not, there's not really, it's not incredulity here. It's not, it's not a, it's not that Abraham is questioning or doubting. It's just that he's overwhelmed by it. Okay. It takes some, sometimes when God hits you with the, the magnitude of His promise. Sometimes it's just so overwhelming, you've got to stop and go, okay, this is God that's saying this to me. It's not just that I cooked up in my own mind, okay? And, and one of the reasons I suggest that, that there's not any, that the question here is not an indication of any serious doubt in Abraham's mind is because there's no reprimand, there's no correction. Now, when we get to chapter 18 and Sarah laughs, we get a different response from God, as you'll see when we get there, okay? So, I would suggest to you that Abraham uh, is just... It's like the disciples when they saw the risen Christ. Remember in Luke chapter 24 when they saw he comes into the room and he starts talking to them and he says, here, touch my hands and, and look on my side and that sort of thing. And it says that they, it says at one point, he says, they were still not believing because of their joy. 
The whole thing was so remarkably good to them that it was hard for them to get their faith around it. Okay, because it was just so good. Okay, I think that's the same kind of thing that's going on here in the heart of Abraham. He's just overwhelmed. He says, Man, is this possible? That a guy that's 100 years old could be given a child and his wife who's 90 years old could bear a child? Is this possible? And he's just overwhelmed by the magnitude and the greatness of the promise of God that it takes him a few moments to get his faith around it. To, 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 get his, to get a handle on it and go, okay, this is God saying this. This is, this is really going to happen. And as soon as he has that thought, he has another thought. It's almost inevitable because Abraham has in the past walked in the flesh. And because he's walked in the flesh, he has another son. And here we see where from Abraham's perspective, not from God's, but from Abraham's perspective, his having walked in the flesh in the past now creates complications in his mind for how this whole promise of God is going to work out. You see, this whole complication here, this whole hesitancy on the part of Abraham that we run into in regard to Ishmael, that would never have been there had he never had sexual relations with Hagar, right? If, if he and Sarah had not cooked up this plan for how to, how to accomplish the promise of God in the flesh, if they had never done that, this question would never come to his mind. But because he's walked in the flesh in the past, the promise of God is now complicated to him and not simple. It's not complicated to God, <laughs> as we'll see here in a moment, but it's complicated to Abraham. And he's going, oh, oh, oh wait a minute, wait a minute, Ishmael, Ishmael. Oh, God, that Ishmael might live before you. Okay. Now, what Abraham is saying here, as becomes clear by God's response, is he's saying, now, wait a minute, I have a son I love. I love this guy. I love this kid. I love Ishmael. And I want, I want him to be, you know, I don't want him to be excluded. You see, in Abraham's mind, God has, God has never yet to Abraham said specifically to Abraham that he would have one son of the covenant. He's only promised him a covenant with descendants. Okay, plural. He's never indicated to Abraham that it would be through one son. And so what Abraham is really asking here is, Okay, now I see you're going to give me a son through Sarah, but I don't want Isaac to be excluded. And in Abraham's mind, there's only one issue at stake, and that's the issue of the covenant. Now, in God's mind, there's two issues at stake. There's covenant and there's blessing, and those are two different things. But in Abraham's mind, they're all wrapped up as one. And so what Abraham is really saying is, okay, this is pretty exciting, but Lord, can we have Ishmael part of this covenant too? And it's only at that point that God makes it clear, no, this covenant is with one of your descendants. It's with Isaac, okay, as, as becomes clear. Okay. So, so Abraham now, he's trying, to, he's trying to solve this problem that God has. <laughs> okay? 
And so, that's right. Yes, he's still trying to solve problems that didn't exist. Okay, so he's trying to solve this problem that God seems to have now, and that He has because He loves this son Ishmael. Okay, and and so he pleads with God, and then God's answer is what? Well, in one word, what's his answer? No. Okay. If you have a New International Version, what's his answer? Huh? Yes. Okay. Come on, guys. Let's get this straight. Is it no or is it yes? Some translators translate it no, and some translators translate it yes. And it can be translated either way. Because the sense of the word is, on the other hand, okay, so when somebody says something to you and you say, on the other hand, in one sense, you're saying both no and yes, right? You're acknowledging the truth of what they're saying. And on the other side, you're saying there's more to the story. Okay. And so what, what God is really saying here to Abraham is instead of what you've got in mind, on the other hand, this is the way it's going to be. The covenant will be with Isaac alone. And I will establish with him an everlasting covenant. And it will be for him and his descendants. So the covenant is with Isaac and with Isaac alone. But the blessing is also on Ishmael. And so then he details the blessing to Ishmael. He's going to be the father of... Uh, of he's going to multiply greatly. He's going to be the father of 12 princes. And he's going to be a great nation and all those sorts of things. And just in passing... Uh, in, in, in just a moment here, just let me remind you, we said this before, that Ishmael, that Ishmael is a reward and a blessing to Hagar. And the descendants of Ishmael are a blessing on Ishmael. They are not a curse. They are a blessing. It's a complication in the life of Abraham because it was done through the flesh. But they are a blessing. And God intends for them to be a blessing. And it's God's intention with the descendants of Ishmael as much as with all the nations that they would be blessed in Abraham. Okay. So anyway, so he says this to Abraham. He says, Isaac is your son through whom this covenant is going to be effectuated. Okay. And he's going to come in about a year. Okay. And then God is finished with his discussion with Abraham and he assents. What does Abraham do now? Okay, I want you to notice two things. One thing is Abraham's immediate obedience. It stresses he did it that day. It's immediate obedience. He doesn't dilly-dally around. God told him what to do. He's going to do it. That's one of our biggest problems, isn't it? God tells us what to do, and we think, okay, let's see. I'll put that over here. You know, I've got other priorities in life, and I put God's commands over here, and I'll get to them when I have time. But Abraham doesn't do that. You know why Abraham doesn't do it? You know why he doesn't wait? Because God said a year from now you're going to have a kid. So he's got to get this done. Because this whole thing about being, having a kid has got to be sanctified by this circumcision thing. He's got to make sure that when his wife conceives that he's sanctified and pure through the act of circumcision. So it's important he get it done. Because the promise of God is coming. So the first thing is immediate. 
obedience. What's the second thing about his obedience? Well, I don't know if this is what you were going to say, but I was observing here that Ishmael also had this sign of the covenant, which I don't know. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. But that's how who gets circumcised here? Everybody. In other words, it's what kind of obedience? It's complete obedience, isn't it? So there's immediate obedience and there's complete obedience. It's not enough for Abraham that he be circumcised or that he and Ishmael be circumcised or that he and the servants born in his house be circumcised, but that he follow God's instructions to the letter, that he do everything that God commanded as God said. And so we have immediate circumcision, we have immediate obedience and we have complete obedience. Now, this is may strike you a little bit funny. It strikes me as a little bit funny, but have you ever asked yourself this question? What was that staff meeting like? When Abraham called all his men together, grown men, many of them as we've seen warriors, over 300 of them remember, he calls them all together for a staff meeting shortly after his little conversation with God and says, guys, whatever you got on schedule for today, we need to table that. In fact, guys, you're not going to be feeling very well, very good for the next few days. So you might want to put, you know, if you're planning on branding cattle today, you better put that on hold. You know, you're not going to feel up to that. Because, uh, and then he puts his arm around Ishmael and he says, uh, because my son Ishmael and me, here, we're, we're going to get circumcised today. And, uh, and Ishmael's going, we are, you know, 13-year-old kid. You know. and, uh, and he's going, and uh, by the way, uh, all you 300, you know, tough, rough, warrior-type servant guys, we're going to circumcise all of you too. Today. <laughs> you would think so, wouldn't you? I had asked myself, what did Abraham say to convince 300 warrior servants to be circumcised? Pardon? Well, yeah, that's pretty good for Abraham because he walks and talks with God. But what about these other guys? They haven't heard from God. I think Abraham was in charge of his men. Okay. Well, I think he's in charge of his men too, but now, that's a pretty sensitive issue here. You know what? what? Yeah, I'm sure he did. But how do you convince 300 guys to be circumcised? Yeah, you guys are missing it. How was Abraham convinced to get circumcised? There was there was a promise. There was a promise. How did he convince 300 guys to get circumcised? They said, guys, this is the promise. God's made a promise here, guys. And if you want to be a part of this promise, if you want to be a part of this blessing, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. You follow God. You obey God. Now, the question is, what percentage of these guys actually believed the promise when they were circumcised? And I can't answer that question. 
But I'm pretty sure there was one guy there who wasn't believing. It was who? Ishmael. Because a year later, we see him mocking the promise of God, Isaac. So we find that it's possible for one to be circumcised outwardly and not to have been circumcised in the heart. So I don't know what percentage of Abraham's servants and men in his house and boys in his house on that day when they were circumcised. I don't know how many of them actually believed the promise, but I am convinced that the only way that Abraham could have convinced so many people to be circumcised was to tell them what God had promised them. I think there's a feel to it comes to me that there's a difference between being a leader and being a boss. And these guys had seen him in action. They knew he walked with God. They'd yeah. seen him win battles. They knew he had seen him give the spoil back. They, they knew that this, whatever their degree of faith was, they knew God was with this man. Yeah. And he had his hand on him. And yeah. I think that has something to do with the, the respect oh, of him. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yes. There's also a verse 14 says that you're not going to be circumcised, you're Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of the issue. When you, when, when you tell these people this is the promise of God, and the way you identify with the promise of God and become a partaker of this promise of God is by, by, by showing your faith in the, in the promise of God through circumcision. And so, yeah, I think it's pretty clear. If you weren't going to be circumcised, you were no longer going to be part of Abraham's household. Yeah, no doubt about it. But the issue is that the promise of God was extended to literally hundreds of men who were not the physical descendants of Abraham. And so we discover that God's covenant blessing that he's going to extend through Abraham as the blessing bearer, that that covenant blessing is a blessing, as he said, on all the nations. It's a blessing that God intends to extend to all the nations, to everyone who is willing by faith to be circumcised in their heart. Okay. Well, we're completely out of time. So next week we'll go on in chapter 18 and the story gets even more interesting.